Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chaney. Welcome, Food and Faith Podcast community. This is Anna here today with my good friend and co-host, Derek. How's it going, Derek? It's going well. It's good to uh, have a chance to do an interview with you. We haven't, uh, the two of us, done one in a while. So it's nice to be able to uh, sit down with you and and have a conversation. And right back at you. And our conversation today, I'm very excited. So our guest today is Lee Anderson. And Lee is somebody that I know in real life. Um, you know, I even saw him just the other day when he very kindly brought our family most delicious meal, which he's been doing every Monday night since we brought our little one home. Um, and this is an interview that has been on my mind probably for the last almost two years. Um, and I'm glad we can have it today. So Lee is a full-time cook and so much more for Mana Community Kitchen. And we'll hear more about what Mana Community Kitchen is, but um, it is, I first encountered it at St. John's Episcopal in here in Northampton. And since then have just grown in appreciation and admiration for the work that Lee and so many others on the Mana team do in terms of feeding our community, both in body, but also in mind and spirit um, and fostering a real sense of, of dignity and care and community. Um, he says in his bio that he's been the full-time cook for Mana since 2018, and he especially loves the relationship he has made with guests, local farms, kitchens, and volunteers. So Lee, thank you so much for coming and sharing on the show today. Thank you for making it available. It's a good opportunity for me. So Lee, we like to begin every episode by asking our guests, what is your geography? Um, And you can interpret that any way that you want. What is the land, the food, the culture, whatever it is that has shaped you into the person that you are today? What is, how would you describe your geography? Well, (laughs) you know, I did, my geography is a little odd. Um, Or how I'm going to answer that question is a little odd, I think. I mean, I grew up here in Western Massachusetts, you know, having you know, I grew up seven miles from where I'm sitting right now and haven't really moved much at all. Um, my family wasn't the most fun family to grow up in um, our house. My grandparents were wonderful. So I grew up outdoors a lot. So animals and nature really, I you could say they saved me. Um, as a teen, my grandfather had racehorses and a cash register business, which was odd. So as a teen, I traveled around with the racehorses a lot, which was fun as a teen when you didn't have to worry about anything. I burned out on that about 22 years old and asked to move into the cash register business. And that's where this new me started, I suppose. Because after spending years repairing cash registers then i started selling and my favorite place to sell was to restaurants and what was interesting which i didn't know then but looking back a lot of my faith and my life you know where i am today i understand these these mile markers in my life only in hindsight but 
when I was selling to restaurants, the craft of food, the, the care people gave to food, I found very interesting. I don't know if I knew it was interesting, mm. um, but I found that very interesting. And doing my work at Mana Now, that experience really helps me. So my first experience with cooking was my family. Um, when my grandparents' generation passed away, a family get-together wasn't the most fun. So I realized, well, if I cooked, I could be there, but not be there. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and so I used cooking as isolation, mm. you know, um, without the, you know, the penalty. Um, and, you know, when I, so a power greater than mine brought me to St. John's one day. And, you know, cooking, I was good at it, I suppose. And, enjoyed it. And there was a woman here, Martha, who, you know, would cook the, you know, Strove Tuesday pancake breakfast and those kinds of things that happen in churches. So she asked me if I'd help her. So I started that same pattern here. And there was a gentleman here who passed away, but his name was Dick Fish. He was a photographer for Smith College. And he, and again, I didn't know this while I had the opportunity of Dick's friendship, but he, at the time, I might have called, pestered me and said, you should do this. And I said, what? And he says, cooking. And I said, why? And he said, well, first of all, you're good at it and you like it. And honestly, those two things I didn't believe. And he worked <laughs> on me and worked on me. But it's so subtle. I didn't see it happening at the time. It wasn't until his funeral here at St. John's when a million people shared stories that were exactly like mine about this gentleman seeing their gifts and encouraging them to share your gifts. Mm. We have gifts, share them. And it was that strength from Dick, you know, stewardship of my gift almost that got me to be willing to join MANA. So you know, I joined MANA when a previous treasurer stepped down, moved to Oregon and asked, could you fill my role? Um, so I was on the board of MANA for a while before I had the opportunity to cook. But, you know, so my geography was really, you know, from, from the time I was 20 was food related that I didn't even recognize it until you guys presented that question and made me think about it. <laughs> so anyway. Well, we hope that that's the beauty of, of that particular question, um, that it, it kind of draws those those ideas out of people. Um, I, I wanted to, before we go into MANA, I, I do want to just kind of touch on, you know, Anna and I have been having lots of conversations lately about the role of cooking. And you just said something in your biography that I think is, uh, in your geography, that I think is really interesting. You talked about cooking sort of as an escape in some ways, that you were able to cook for people, um, be there, but also in a way not be there. Can you can you um, flesh that out a little bit more? I mean, I understand sort of, I understand it sort of on a, on a surface level of, you know, being in the kitchen and being away for people, but what did that, what did that do for you that, that being able to be there, but not be there? How, how I started, cooking was the 
I had an interest in the cooking from seeing my customers cook things in their kitchens, in the commercial kitchens when I'm selling to them. So that was interesting. Not enjoying being at a family event once my grandparents' generation passed away and my parents no longer had to pretend to be good parents, mm. their parents. You know, I would miss a holiday here or there. But then the penalty for that would be greater than if I had just gone through the holiday. Then, you know, the Lord above <laughs> gave me this gift. Well, if you cook, you're in the kitchen. Nobody wants to be in the kitchen because it's hot and it's messy and it's loud. They're all in the living room or in the dining room. And I still get credit for being there. And... Um, and I enjoyed the physical act of cooking. So that was fun too. Um, but it really was isolation. I didn't understand it that way. Um, but it, it was, it was to keep away from what was hurting me, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was Dick that told me that, well, you've evolved, you know, I mean, your food can do good things now. Mm. Uh, you know, like I grew up in a family that, um, you know, everything was somebody else's fault and I was an only child. So there wasn't a lot of somebody else's to share that. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, I truly enjoyed, you know, the, that craft of food. Food was fun to work with. Um I can't give myself credit for being smart enough to understand some of these things then, but here now I understand like if food could bring people that don't like each other together, mm. then what kind of power could food have if you brought people together and respected them and liked them and proved to them that they were worthy of this? Like, so how powerful could this, this thing be? Um, you know, and I did have that, in my awareness when I started cooking at Mana, like, we have a gift that people will come and trust us to feed them. And that's truly not what they want when they come here. Yeah. But it's the safest thing to say I'm going to get. Um, so let's do those other things that people need to survive and to live a happy life, which is, you know, sometimes it's as simple as being seen and heard. It's eye contact. You know, such small little things. Um, so we have this this gift of food that will bring people together, um, and then we can we can do more than they expected when they get here. Um, we can create friendships. It's beautiful, and it just it's really profound to think about because I think like it feels like one of those things that in the kind of surface level in the world we think food brings people together. Like that's kind of something I feel like we would say. And so to, to start to say that, like that your journey with food actually was about isolation and escape. And yet the thing that that transformed into is, is connection and is that, that gift of how food actually does, can heal us and can, can transform, can transform us. Um, and, you know, MANA is, you know, an interfaith organization, but we try not to be overtly religious because we don't want barriers to food. 
primary goal is feed somebody. So if the church has hurt somebody, we don't want that to be. So we don't want to pretend to be too religious during a meal. But without me finding this church and finding Dick Fish, Dick Fish never would have been able to switch that for me. Right. I still would have been isolating somewhere with food. I never would have taken food to the relationship building tool that it is. Right. So, you know, St. John's and, you know, St. John's religion brought that to me. So I'm, you know, I'm ever thankful to this church for that. It's, it's fun to have these gifts. You don't even know of them. It's, you know, somebody else can know what's in your soul before you do. It's mm -hmm. remarkable. <laughs> yeah. Well, and isn't that the gift of community and the gift of church is that we can see that in one another. Right. So take us to that day that you walked into St. John's. Take us to that, that first. That first day that, well, yeah. you know, that's a very, all right. So I was never really, my grandmother was a Holyoke Catholic, which unless you're from around here, you don't know what that means, but you know, the Holyoke is littered with Catholic churches. My grandmother went to church, you know, on her birthday and Easter and Christmas. Um, but, you know, would die in that ditch if you said you're not religious, you know. My mother, through in one year, when I was probably 10, decided to bring me to a congregational church in West Springfield. And even as a 10-year-old, I realized, well, this was just to get your mother mad. Because you have huh. no interest in religion. So, I, you know, I spent a year in, in a church in West Springfield and then nothing all my life. I'm chronically late in business because I just am, I, you know, I, I used to have a million reasons, but I see that they're just nothing. So I'm on my way to a customer's location in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And my grandfather always taught me, if you're going to be a good salesperson, you cannot drive highways. So drive the back roads because you'll never see, you no, know, you know, no store opens up on the mass turnpike. Huh. So, you know, drive the back roads. So I'm driving to Williamstown. I have a nine o'clock appointment and it's an hour or so ride if everything goes fine. And I'm driving by St. John's at like seven in the morning. And I stopped in front of St. John's. Now I had never been in this building before in my life. I'm stopped and I'm parked. And I literally said to myself in my head, what are you doing? You're gonna be late to meet Nancy. It's your first time you ever had a shot of being on time, you know? The woman loves you. Don't push her. You know? And I don't know why. So I get out of the car and I go to the front doors of the church and they're locked. And I'm thinking to myself, OK, go back in your car and don't be late. But I don't. I turn towards the parish house, which is off to the side of the main sanctuary church. And I'm literally having this conversation in my head, like, what are you doing? You know, because there was a sign outside that said, like, morning prayer service, you know, and I said, well, you know, maybe it's a different morning, you know? And so I walk up to the glass doors on the side of the church. There's another entrance to this church. And one of them is unlocked and there's two right in a row, like a typical retail store, you know, air gap thing. I go to the next glass door and it's locked. And again, I do not turn around and go back to my car. Like to the right of you is another door that leads into the sanctuary. 
And I go to that door and I'm still thinking, get in your car. What are you doing? Like the door's locked. Nobody's here. So I go to the sanctuary door and there's this little window in the sanctuary door. And I look in and there's nobody there. And I'm thinking, all right, you had your shot. Get in your car. Don't be late. And then out of the corner of my eye, I catch somebody who's up on the altar that you could just barely see through this little glass window. And he's motioning to me to come in with his finger. So now I said, all right, well, now I'm caught. I still don't know why I'm in a church and I walk in and I guess at the time, the morning prayer service, the Episcopal morning prayer service, you know, wasn't very well attended five or six people. Um, it was led by a, a lay minister and they were up on the, like up on the, the altar area and the people at the service sat in the choir pews. So I couldn't see them. They were like hidden from that window and he was across so now we're all sitting in the front pew because there's only one pew there. And I can remember like, you know, when I went to church with my mother that one year, you just figured out what the person was doing in front of you to follow along. Well, there's nobody in front of me. So I am. <laughs> and the woman sitting next to me, you know, is a Smith student. So this young, attractive woman, I don't want to stare at her. You know, I'm just feel so awkward to look at her and see what she's doing. And David, who was leading the service, like stops the service in the middle and says, son, it's the red book. <laughs> and if you know, you know the red book's the book of common prayer. And, but he said it in such a way that didn't shame me, which is what I'm used to in my family. And I felt cared for like almost for the first time in a million years. And now literally I'm still going to be late. Right. So now it's a guarantee I'm going to be late to my meeting. But so the, the service is over and morning prayers, you know, a nice short service. And um, so, David, when we're leaving, I don't leave and I don't know why. Um, but David goes into the sacristy to change out of the, his, you know, robe and he comes out and he was this monstrous guy who's a retired um, lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And we started talking and I just had, you know, this. It was undeniable that he cared for me. And you know, I'm running this through my head. I'm saying he literally just met you five minutes ago. How could you, you know, how could this be? But he was demonstrating this level of care that I've never experienced. So I started attending that sir, that service for a long time. Um, you know, and my doubting self, you know, made up a bunch of excuses for what it was and blah, blah, blah. And then I um, we're waiting one day. He doesn't show up to service. And this that woman who was sitting next to me, who's a senior at Smith, we're sitting on the railing outside waiting for David to get here and unlock the door. And he never shows up that day. And so we're just chit chatting. And I said to Ryan, I said, you know, I've been coming here for a while and I want to invite my son, who's 12. But I don't want him to think that I've gone over the bend because we've never been religious. I don't know how to explain it to him. And she looks at me because I'm thinking of her as Jay's peer because she's a kid. But um, she says, well, why don't you just simply ask him? And it would like never occurred to me that it would be that simple. You know, so I did ask him, then, you know, and um, he said, sure. And then what happened was even more crazy to me at the time was Jay instantly had that same connection to David. You know. Now, David passed away not too long after all of that. And my ex-wife is a physician and she calls me one day and she not at all religious, possibly even religious 
hostile um, and says, and we're split up, you know, we're divorced. And she says, you know, thanks for taking Jay to church. And I didn't believe any of that stuff. She said, but you know, it's made him a better person and I can see it. And she said, like, what I know about David's illness was you met him at the exact right time because he was already dying from what took him. So, you know, like for Chrissy to say that, you know, there's providence in this experience that both you and Jade have have had that, you know, the, you met that person at the exact time. There wasn't a lot of time for that person to extend the energy that they gave to you and Jay, you know, that was a fairly special moment for me. Um, but, you know, I still, it's still funny because I could find myself even looking back on that, trying to leave and not being able to, mm. you know, three door, you know, two doors locked one door where I don't see any people. Like there were opportunities for me to, to chicken out of this. Cause I knew I said, you're walking into a church, nothing good happens. You know, that, that because change is going to happen and change is painful mm. and you know what I mean? So what are you doing? Like go back and be your dysfunctional self. But you know, there was a power greater than me that kept me every step. I had multiple steps to run away and I didn't, you know, and I don't thank me for it. I thank something else. Yeah. That's, that's often how, how God works in our lives is, is in those places where, uh, everything is telling us to run away and we keep moving forward. Yep. <laughs> um, could you tell us a little bit about what is, what is a, uh, what is a, what is a typical mana experience? Someone comes through the doors of mana and they're coming through to, to, uh, and, and they're, they're encountering this organization for the first time. What is the experience for the person who's coming through those doors? Well, you know, that would be basically, you know, meeting people where they are. I mean, that's our key thing. So this is a, like a zero judgment zone. So we will meet, if five people come to the door, we will meet five people differently. Now there's two models of us. There was one where it was a sit down dinner and there's one where in pandemic times where it was takeout only. But, um, you know, I think what we have happened is you're, you're, welcoming a friend to a meal. Um, when we were a sit down dinner, you know, we would sit and eat with the guests and hear their stories, you know, um, and if they were willing to tell them. And some of them are amazing, you know, and the other thing about how we operate, like do no harm, you know, so trauma informed service, like don't re-traumatize, like rigid rules, that don't need to be there shouldn't be there. Like if we used to have a rule where you couldn't come into the meal, you know, before a half an hour before the meal. And it was like, well, what's is the point of that? Like somebody's waiting out in the parking lot in the rain. Like, what is the point? If we're here, you're here. Like you're our friends, you know, come into the room, share with us, get comfortable with us. Um, you know, there was a, a gentleman that came and it's remarkable I asked him, you know, he was quite a nice guy, talked to me a lot. I finally get some courage. And I said, you know, what, what's your story? Like, how did this, so to speak, happen to you? Like, I didn't even know the right language to enter into stories with people. So I, but his story was so my story was remarkable. He was a truck driver, CDL truck driver, you know, tractor trailers. 
gets a divorce, you know, in the process of a divorce, divorce, you know, splits up from his wife, you know, still passionately in love with his wife and kid. Um, doesn't have a lot of money, but he's supporting them. He hates the fact that she's divorcing him. He's living in a little apartment he can barely afford. He doesn't have a, he doesn't drink, you know, has no drug abuse problems yet. One day he's on his way to work, you know, and he worked for, you know, a company where he didn't take the truck home or he took the truck home, but you would go to the yard and you would hook up to whatever trailer you were assigned and drive it to Michigan or wherever it's going. You know, so one day on his way to work, he has one beer and by some bizarre twist runs into his boss in the yard. Just, Hey, how are you doing? Boss smells beer and his breath fires him on the spot. It's almost impossible to get another job truck driving if alcohol is the reason you lost your last one. So now he's, you know, two months before he doesn't have enough money for rent. Now he's homeless. And when Chrissy and I broke up, that was exactly my story. Chrissy's a doctor. You know, I had this cash register company that my grandfather left me. Um, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money in it. I'm living in this little itty bitty apartment I can barely afford and hating my life, but I have no boss to fire me, but I should have been fired because I would go into work an hour late every day. Cause I just was not motivated. And I'm thinking like, why him and not me? You know, there's just no, it's not, I didn't do any hard work to get to this. It's luck, you know? So like sitting with people and hearing their stories is, and you know, and some of my recovery is having the, um, I, you know, I've never had drug abuse problems, luckily, but I, you know, I had dysfunction. So some of my recovery is being able to be safely say my story out loud. There's some power in when it comes from me, like somebody can tell me my story, but it doesn't mean anything. But sitting with a guest and having them the luxury of telling their story, you know, it, the street is a cold, lonely place, you know. Um, you're invisible a lot. Um, so we try to be personable with guests. You know, we try to feed them, you know, food is health. And we try to feed them well, feed them better than they think they deserve, which is a horrible sentence to say. When we at St. John's remodeled and moved, we used to feed in the undercroft. So if you're an Episcopalian, I think undercroft is this classic thing for the cellar, you know, but no windows, you know dark, you know, as dark, but, you know, fluorescent lights, just basement. You know, yeah, <laughs> right. And so we move upstairs. That, that was one of the key things that Saint, the St. John's community wanted to do for, for Mana. Like, and we used to enter by the side door by the dumpster. So, you know, explain that to somebody when they say, well, I want to come to the meal, but how do I get in? Like the only way to describe it is the door by the dumpster. It's a horrible sentence. So we're upstairs in the parlors, you know, first floor, all windows and a couple of the parishioners are artists by trade and loan some art for the walls. And like the first week we're in there, you know, we have wood tables and they're set up cafe style, you know, a bunch of four tops or six tops. And one of the guests says to me, I can't believe we get to eat in a room with art. And like that sentence just broke my heart. Like, of course you get to like, there's <laughs> like, I hate the fact that you think that that's a bad, like, you wouldn't assume you know, that this is something like, yes, you get to. So we're trying to exceed expectations. Um, you know, I, I think about, you know, my journey. Um, 
until I didn't start to get healthy in my life until I cared about me, you know? So I think like, let's show people we care about them and maybe they'll realize they're worth caring about themselves too. Yeah. Um, food gives us that easy thing. It's easy to, you know, give somebody better food than they could buy downtown. Um, this Valley we live in is, you know, ridiculously abundant in financial means and food. I mean, we grow stuff all over like Hatfield and Hadley are just this beautiful farmland. Um, so it's really easy for us to prepare meals that go over the top um, and prove to people that, you know, not just me, but everybody thinks you're worth it, yeah. you know? And so that's, that's what we try to do at, at Mana, And we try to have fun doing it. So we try to be, you know, if we can't laugh a dozen times an hour, then we're not doing something right. <laughs> well, and I just want to give witness to, um, the over the top in the best of ways nature of the food at mana so we've had this honor the last what is it three or four weeks of of having mm -hmm. having dinner and so you know the wonderful people in the community have made us different meals and that they've been lovely different meals and monday nights don't tell anyone else, but they're our favorites because <laughs> it's because <laughs> it's Lee. And and the thing is, I mean, we sat down the other night for this beautiful asparagus and steak and potato with cream butter. And and we could have thought, oh, Lee did this specially for us because we have a new baby. But yeah. what I know is that that was a man meal packaged up, and that's what all of our neighbors and friends right. were eating yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, we were sitting there and saying, like, this is this could be like a fancy restaurant meal right. um and what what made it even more special was to know that yes you did that for us but no you did that that was the meal that was for yeah, we did yeah, we right. did 250 of those meals that day it, you know so there is one thing i did for you is i didn't carve your steak for you but oh you know, the meals that went out because we give plastic forks and the takeout in plastic knives. So we, we slice their steaks like London Royal style, nice thin slices so they wouldn't have to struggle with our plastic silverware. But um, Well, that was because of the privilege we have of having steak exactly. knives. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, but it's easy to do, you know, and it's, um, you know, people... Guests recognize it, and I hope it it brightens everything they do in their life. We had a, a kid. I say I call everybody a kid that's not my exact age, but he was um, Afghan um, war vet. Um, he was, you know, coming to the meals and got to the point where we were close enough where he would come into the kitchen in the morning and he'd help me do anything, emptying the trash and blah, blah. And then he's talking about some meal his mother made. And I'm always looking for ideas on what to cook for people. Um, because, you know, I've run out of all the things I've saw my customers cook, but he was talking about his mom used to make roulade, which is a steak pounded flat, like a, like a schnitzel. And then it's rolled in caramelized onions or, Caramelized onions, a dill pickle, mustard is rolled inside of it, and then it's seared and baked. And so I said, that sounds brilliant. You know, so I thought to myself, I'll make that tomorrow. So I made that tomorrow. And 
back when we were a sit-down restaurant, we would say grace. So I asked him if he'd say grace for the meal, you know, and, you know, during grace, but then we say what the meal is. And when he got the little card to read out what the meal was, he started to cry. You know, he said, I cannot believe that you would do that for me. And I said, of course we would do that. We would do that for anybody. And, you know, so it's, it's things like that, like the, the smallest little kindness, um, or they seem small to me, but they're massively um, influential in somebody's life. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm hearing in your story over and over again is, is just your ability to use food and the table to uphold the dignity of people and, and to let them know their worth and to let them know that there is, there is, uh, there is, no limit to what they what they deserve to have the good things that they deserve to have in their life and i think um you know we all have those moments where that message is just really hard to receive because of how we might be feeling about ourselves and to have have someone outside mm-hmm. of your experience be able to you know put that meal in front of you that communicates, yeah, of course we would do this for you. You're, you're worth it. You're, you're absolutely worth it. That's so incredibly powerful. Um, It's just such a meaningful, uh, such a meaningful thing. Um, And I, I, I'm just, I'm really, I've been, I've been struck by so many, you've, you've given us so much to think about and, and, and reflect on. I'm, I'm really curious like what, what for you is, is sort of the, is there a difference between when you're feeding a group of people, a large group of people versus, you know, the cooking that you do for yourself at home, or maybe even just, or the cooking you do for, you know, just a family, like that, that experience of cooking for others, how is, how is that impact? I mean, it sounds like it's, it's having, uh, it's a major impact on, on the folks that you're serving, but that cooking for a large group of people, how is that impacting you and your own, your own sense of self and your own sense of faith? Well, it, it certainly is, you know, the, the new Lee and since coming to St. John's and being involved in manna that will accept that I'm either good or bad at something, but when I'm good at something, I, I will accept that. So there is something to say that, you know, few, we pulled that off. Like the other day, which still shocks me, we did 329 meals, which is the most we've wow. ever done outside of Thanksgiving or Christmas. And, um, you know, it didn't feel any, you know, we just flexed our muscles and did that. And I think like, well, you go to the gym and it hurts and you go there on purpose to, you know, to tear your muscles and get better. So, What's the difference? Like this doesn't even hurt. (laughs) um, You know, it's, it's fun. You know, there's a, you know, Lisa, my girlfriend will pick on me because she has to remind me when we're cooking for ourselves that you're not in St. John's kitchen, Mana's kitchen. There's no floor drain. (laughs) 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 You know, so, you know, be a little bit more careful, but you know, there is something fun for, you know, me who's never worked you know, in a, you know, one of my customers kitchens, but like to work in a commercial kitchen is rewarding. Um, 
you know, and I have the luxury, you know, we make three or four meals a day kind of a thing. So that we make the big batch of, you know, 200 servings of something. Then there's a vegetarian version of that same thing. And then there's a vegan version of hopefully of that same thing. So, you know, you have three different meals, but there's not really a lot of three different prep. You just don't put the, you know, animal product into it until the vegan part is reserved aside. And, and, um, you know, on a, on certain days we do two meals for our home delivery. So they have a meal for the next day that Manna doesn't have a meal at the door. Um, so there'll be a set, a separate meal. So there's, there is actually, um, an amazing amount of enjoyment, you know, where I can see, you know, my volunteers and I have pulled that off and had fun doing it. You know, we were one day, um, a Saturday meal, which used to be down at Edwards church. And we would get a lot of college kids. And there was this one college kid that was coming from UMass and she was coming for, I don't know, three or four weeks. And then she brings a friend, which I always think, okay, well, we're doing good things. If somebody will bring one of their friends later, you know, and I didn't hear what they were talking about, but you know, you have these two kitchen tables that are back to back to each other. So there's prep people on both sides. So I'm on one side, they're on the other side. I don't know what they're saying, but I hear her saying, yeah, you're right. It's exactly, it's just like having a free cooking class. So I don't know what they said up to that, but when she <laughs> that her friend, like, yeah, you're right. It's just like a free cooking class. I just knew, well, they are having fun. So not only are my guests taken care of, but like our volunteers are taken care of. And, you know, our volunteers, you know, the other day we made Stromboli and there's, you know, this family that's been coming, a husband, wife, two daughters, you know, high school age daughters, juniors and seniors, I think. And, um, you know, we made 300 Strombolis. Well, if you've ever folded and wrapped and rolled out pizza dough for 300 Strombolis, you know, in an hour, <laughs> because we serve all of them at 1130, you know, but there was flour everywhere, you know, it, it was fantastic. But, you know, we had this amazing amount of fun at the end of the meal, at the end of the prep, when the meal is going out in the kitchen, my kitchen crew and I just turned to cleanup mode. You know, it was like everybody was energized. It was just so much fun to do it. You know, so I, you know, we're, we're doing good things with both the guests we serve and the volunteers that help us serve it. And it's just wonderfully rewarding. You know, it is, it's a muscle, like, you know, we can, we're working out. <laughs> it, it's hard, but you know, at the at the end of it, you're just happy you did it and you're able to do it again tomorrow without, you know, from a I was just talking to somebody the other day because Vinny, this kid Vince that volunteers every day with us, um, he catches me in the morning. He comes really early and I'm bringing the trash and he knows I'm grumpy. I don't know, you know, apparently you can tell. But you know, he says, What's wrong? I said, I don't know, something's wrong. But like literally an hour later when the volunteers started to get to there. So I was like tired, a little grumpy. And now we cook a meal for 300 or 250 people, probably average, right? 200 meals, which I should be more tired and more grumpy, but I was energized. Like there, not only is there this, this spiritual gratitude that comes back that feed your soul, but there is a positive, there's an, a physical energy. I am not tired anymore. Like there's a physical energy that comes back in this work. That's 
just amazing, you know. You're transformed by it, right? Yeah, it's just you know, and every day. Yeah. I come to the I come to the kitchen more tired than I leave it. Yeah. It's a well, you see me on Mondays when you know what I mean. Like I am oh, not. You're like <laughs> bouncing up the stairs. You know? <laughs> it's it's remarkable. You know this. It's just remarkable, like the, the the physical energy that comes back from this generosity and this gratitude that you get at the door. Every single guest, you know, like some of the people that come to the door for the first time and you ask them, like, well, how many meals do you want? What do you mean? How many? Like, I could have more than one. Yeah. Do you have a friend? Do you have somebody at home with you? Like, you know, like they're just shocked that we would be that generous. But, you know, there's a a mom and a daughter and she she said this quote but i don't know who she was talking about but she said we wouldn't have made it through this school year if it wasn't for you guys mm-hmm. so i don't know if the, if the daughter's going to school or if she's going back to school you know um but you know like things like that like yes we will help you like life is hard and you don't have to do it alone yeah and, and what a difference it makes whether you're living on the streets or you're in your a home but i mean even if there are resources there's something about a delicious love filled meal that right. just makes it just makes it yep. possible to 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 keep going and more so and, uh, yep. and you know helped. yeah we put out a social media request for um flip flops <laughs> for our power here you know cuz like you know, the people were like, yeah, let's, you know, there's nothing to put on our feet. It's just a little weird to get out of the shower and, you know, into the, onto the floor of the bathroom. Um, but that mother and daughter team is the one that bought us 16 pairs of flip-flops, oh, you know, and it was like, oh right. my God. Right. It's but, right. The reciprocity of it all. Yeah. You know, so we try to, you know, let people like, there was a friend of mine that said something to me, which was shocking, which was when, when, circumstances take from you what you miss the most is not getting but it's not being able to give anymore mm-hmm. you know so whether that be you know a physical limitation or a financial one or an emotional one like what you miss the most is not being able to give it's not that oh now i can't get or now i can't walk up the stairs or i can't get to the second floor or i can't buy but it's you you miss giving as much as you miss, you know, and sometimes more, you know, so you know, it was really an amazing gen- demonstration of gratitude when, when, you know, when she brought us in 16 pairs of flip-flops. I, I just want to, I want to just drill down just for a second here um, on a, a question that we kind of, kind of skated by. There's, there are a lot of soup kitchens. There is, uh, there's all sorts of ways to receive people who are coming through those lines, and and uh, you know, to to there there's labels. They're they're poor. They're needy. They're underserved. There's all these things. But you have continually used words like guest and friend, and I I just want to kind of sit and hang out with that why why that language um when when there's so much about this this particular situation of coming to get these meals that can be dehumanizing and and belittling 
of of why that language is important that that you refer to them as 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 guests and as friends well because they are you know um, there's none of the people that work with me or that trust me to feed them if you bump to them bumped into them on the street would not call me and all the volunteers they bump into during the course of a meal you know they're friends they know that we care for them um, they care for us. Um, they start to care for each other. Um, they, I, I see that by them being brave enough to ask for what they need. Um, you know, like we had a, a kid that would come and, you know, he tells the story all the time, but he would hardly ever eat. And I thought, well, like, why are you not eating? Like, you know, my food is okay. Um, you know, he said, well, I'm diabetic, so I can't have this. And I said, oh, my God, like you've been coming here for weeks. Just say that. Like, what? I don't know what that means, but tell me what you can eat and I will cook it for you. You know, um, you know, so. We are we are friends, you know, there was this the old kitchen at St. John's, you could see right from where I cooked right through the doorways and into the dining room. And there was this one time, and I took a picture of it, but I, I've, I, I lost a phone, an iPhone, and I hope it wasn't on that phone and not uploaded. But there was this picture of one night. It must have been 2.30 in the afternoon. Like, the meal was long over. Everything is mopped up, cleaned up. Everybody's gone. And one of our volunteers, who's now on the board, but he was a vice president at Mass Mutual, you know, in charge of recruiting. And you know how when you look at somebody and they're, body language says that they are just totally relaxed. He is sitting at this table talking to a guest that's probably his first or second time there. And the two of them just had this body language. Like Adam had come late and thought he had missed a meal and I'm putting things away. So I just heated some stuff up for him and gave him a meal. And Ed is sitting there and they're just chit chatting. And here's somebody who, you know, yesterday was sleeping off the bike path in Florence and a former vice president of mass mutual life insurance. And those two people have only met an hour ago and they are so comfortable together. I took a picture. I didn't even want to go out and take it and disturb it. So I took it from where I was standing in the kitchen. So, you know, it's just like this big picture of the kitchen, but through the door, you can just see these two people, but like, that's what informs what I do. Like um, it is, we are just all humans. There's no us and them. We, we are, I don't even know the respectful way to say that sentence. Like we're all us, we're all them. There isn't a separation. Um, and, you know, I would say from us, you know, the, when we started acting like that at MANA, our ability to attract volunteers to work in the meal skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. So even our volunteers, um, responded to that style of interacting with humans. Like um, we, you know, Anna, I'm not sure if you've seen, but like we have no problems with volunteers. Sometimes I have too many volunteers, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, people will ask for, for recipes to go home and take, or they'll bring recipes in and said, try this, you know, maybe you can scale this up to 200, <laughs> you know? So I have to use Google to find out, you know, what is 200, 
quarter tablespoons. Hello. <laughs> 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 But, you know, it's important to, to talk to people, you know, it gets back to that, like, do no harm, like, talk to people like they're people, uh, you know, there's Northampton Mass went through this little phase of complaining about downtown Main Street because of panhandling. And, you know, the mayor did some work and some studies about it. But where I found out about that is there's a shelter Sunday fundraising thing where a bunch of the nonprofits in town get together and do a big fundraising event on, on sun, first Sunday in October, and they call it Shelter Sunday. And there was a, um, one of the booths, you know, that we would set up tables around town or in front of Stop and Shop or in front of Big Y or in front of Walmart, you know, like kind of like the Salvation Army does, you know, at Christmas. So one of them didn't have any volunteers and they asked me, would you do it? And I said, sure. But that is not easy work. The indignity of, people actively not making eye contact with you as they walk by. So I'm thinking about like, so my guests who sit, you know, in front of a store and, you know, ask for a nickel or a quarter or a dollar, and you think that that's the easy way out. That is painfully painful. <laughs> like every, like a hundred people that walk by you prove to you that you're insignificant and invisible. And maybe one will, will have a chat with you, but um, if that's there, if that's the existence of some of the most vulnerable in our town, then I want every interaction they have in the meal to be a thousand times better than that as much as we could possibly do. Um, and you know, the response on both sides of that is nothing but positive. My volunteers like operating that way. They, they are no longer afraid of that. You know, if, if it's a high school, you know, kid that might be a little timid about walking downtown because of the panhandler. That panhandler is now your buddy because you fed them, you know what I mean? A cheeseburger with bacon jam yesterday that they loved. Yeah. You know, so, you know, that's why, like, we don't talk. We change the language, you know, just do no harm, you know, do not re-traumatize. It's bad enough that our society has, very few entrance ramps back to prosperity once you get there. You know, I think about that friend of mine, this truck driver, like, I don't know how he will ever get, you know, a CDL license again if alcohol is the reason he lost one. Right. You know, like, so change your job is your, your you know, but, but it's just such a heavy lift. Like every, every entrance back to, you know, typical lifestyle is a heavy lift for people. So, you know, at Mana, it's not a heavy lift. You know, come as you are, we'll meet you where you are, and we'll feed you the best food we could that day. That's beautiful. Well, so many of these things give me hope. And I think you've already answered the what gives you hope question in abundance, but we want to give you a chance to. Um, what gives you hope today? And that not that kind of hope that ignores the problems and in fact the kind of hope that says hey we live in a broken world and and well, yeah well i think what gives me hope like i can't change the world but you know my world is 10 mile circle from here mm. like, i really could change that i could change what it's like to live in northampton and you know what gives me hope is to see how many 
you know, 17 year olds or 20 year olds volunteer for us. Like these are the people that are going to change our world. These are the people that are going to run the world in 10 years, five years. Um, you know, and they come, they have fun. They're not afraid of the most vulnerable in our community. Um, you know, that's what gives me hope, to, you know, to see the youth embrace giving back. Um, you know, it took me until my 50s to to give back. You know, I was a, I don't know, selfish little white guy. Um, you know, by no, you know, I, I was lucky. Like, my, I didn't build my grandfather's business. He built it and gave it to me. Like, you know, like, how lucky could that be? But, you know... I call myself lucky now, you know, to have, have had the ability to give back, um, you know, so to see the young people and to see how easy it is to change things, you know, manna wasn't always like this and I'm not throwing manna under the bus, but, um, you know, things can change and things can get better and people respond to it. So find the thing that's broken now, you know, and it's changeable. Like, you can change it. You can make somebody's day better and some it's so easy. It will shock you. Mm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, if our guests want to know if our, more about MANA, um, I know you can find it website, mananorthampton.org and on Facebook, MANA Northampton or search for MANA Community Kitchen. If people want to donate financially from anywhere in the world, they're welcome to. Yes. yes. Um, and um, we are just so grateful to have your voice and your stories and your wisdom here well, on the show. And we look forward to, um, I feel pretty sure we'll have you on the show again because I'm looking forward to hanging out yeah. a lot in these coming years and, and well, um, together. <laughs> that'd be awesome. You know, if there's something else people could do, you know, around volunteer at your local meal site. Yeah. You know, be part of that change. Um, you know, and, you know, be generous with your abundance. You know, that's another thing you can do. You know, it's like it says in the Bible, like you have gifts. Everybody has time, talent, and treasure. And, you know, it, it is, feels so good to give it away. Yeah. Lee, thank you so much for just all the encouragement and the ways that you're giving of yourself and uh, the ways that you're bringing healing into the community that you're serving. Thank you for sharing your stories and sharing your heart with us today. All right. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. It's an honor to be asked. I'm, I'm very thankful. We are excited to invite you to a free conference this summer. It's called Sustaining Church, Reimagining Communities of Faith in a Climate Crisis. The aim of this conference is to bring together theological thinking on creation care with those that are actively growing or starting Christian communities that care for land. The hope is that this will be the first of many conversations that inspire further theological thinking around caring for creation, as well as an opportunity to network and empower localized growing communities of faith. The conference will be held over Zoom, so even though it's in the UK, you can take part. Some of our keynote speakers will be familiar to fans of this podcast. Nuriel of Parrish, Ellen Davis, and Norman Wurzba, just to name a few. A full list of speakers and tickets can be found at www.hazelnutcommunityfarm.com. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, 
Plain Song Farm, the Garden Church, and the Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.